The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Come to Second Thessalonians. I told you last year that uh, the books of your New Testament do not appear in chronological order. They appear in logical order. First, the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. A book of history called Acts, the Acts of the Apostle, truly the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And then you have the letters, the, all the letters that the Apostles wrote to all the different churches and individuals so that they would understand their faith. So it appears in logical order, but the very first letter, the first uh, thing written in the New Testament era was First Thessalonians to a struggling church, a church plant. It might have been called Grace Point in Thessalonica, I don't know. Uh, uh, the, a struggling church there, they, they had some questions, and so he wrote back the letter, 1 Thessalonians, he sent it with Timothy, and then they had some more questions, and so he writes 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is really, really short. You can look at it, it's, it's probably in your Bible, it's probably on two and a half pages, it's just three chapters, and, it, and it's very succinct. The Apostle Paul is literally answering their questions. Question number one we looked at last week, if God's good, why do we suffer through adversity? And so he answers that question. That was last week's Bible study together. And for the believer, the answer is he wants you to look like Jesus. He wants you to walk like Jesus, talk like Jesus, act like Jesus. And adversity is the sharpening tool in our lives and how he accomplishes that. When we get to chapter 2... He just literally says, now, so it's question number two. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. So we don't really know what the question was, but we're pretty close. We know uh, that the group at Thessalonica have not figured out the second coming yet. This is, in, this is in spite of the fact that back in the first letter, part of chapter four and five is about the rapture. But now they want to know about the actual coming of the Lord. And so notice that they are, it appears in two parts. He says, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and another part of it is the gathering of ourselves together to him. He says to them, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter that somebody said was from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. So this is their question. They thought that they missed the rapture. They thought that uh, God maybe came and he got the other Christians and somehow he skipped Thessalonica. And You know, when you, when you live in a city that has low self-esteem, you might think that. Like, if the rapture happened, I could see where the people in Butte might think they would be left out. Um, but that's not the case, right? Uh, what you have here is just an uncertainty And so the Apostle Paul says in verse 3, Let no one trick you. Let no one deceive you in any way. For the day will not come unless some things happen first. So, we're going to look at God's Word this morning. I'm going to read the rest of the passage in just a second. And the Apostle Paul is going to give them three things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. Now, let me do this work and separate it for you. So the rapture is one event, and the coming of Christ is another event. And here he's going to talk about the three things that have to happen, not before the rapture, but before the coming of 
the Lord. And uh, there are many things, if, you, if we took the time to read Daniel and Ezekiel and Revelation, we could find lots of these. But this morning, we're just going to study Second Thessalonians chapter 2. We're just going to look at the three things. But before we do, here's my admonishment to you. Here's my, here's my concern for you. Um, I, I remember distinctly um, giving my life to Christ as a young boy. It was a day when I came to the conclusion that my sins had separated me from God, that I deserved eternal separation from God and that punishment. And I realized that Jesus Christ loved me so much he went to the cross to die for me. And I asked his death on the cross to pay for my wickedness and my sin. And I asked him to come into my life to be my boss, my master, my Lord. And I told him from that day forward, the rest of my life, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to live for him. And I have certainly failed him on many, many occasions. But it is my, my daily goal. It is my, it's my last prayer when my head hits the pillow. It's my first prayer when my feet hit the floor. That I, I can glorify God today. That I can be more like Jesus today. I know that many of you, most of you in this room, have a similar event in your life. That moment where you gave your life to the Lord. But as a pastor and a shepherd, I have found myself over the years... Uh, trying to figure out why some of us fly. Some of us grow in the Lord by leaps and bounds, and God blesses us, and some of us don't. And my conclusion really is that though many of us give our lives to the Lord, not very many of us decide that His Word is authoritative for my life. This is, this is the dividing point where Christians are. Christians who, who when they die, they're going to go to heaven. But they don't live their lives under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, under the authority of his revealed word. And so God has revealed himself to us. He's, he's given us his word. And the, and the portion of his word this morning that we're going to study is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But it's all his word. And if you decide that this is God's word to me, and God has the right and the authority to tell me what to do, and I have given him my life, and so I have the privilege and the honor to do what he asks me to do, it irrevocably changes your life in powerful, miraculous, and dramatic ways, and it becomes the separating mark for believers. Why some believers excel and succeed and are blessed by God, and others do not. The reason I say all of that is we come to a discussion this morning that some of you are just going to, you're going to kind of go through, you're going to think, ah, that's not important. You might even roll your eyes at part of it. You might go, ah, I, I don't know that I believe all of that. And it is that belief. It is that that absolute certainty that this is the word of God, God who cannot lie, whose word is true. Truth, And it alone is the litmus test to see what else in the world is truth. When you come to that conclusion, it changes everything. When you read it in the New Testament, on an average, if you were starting Matthew and you read a revelation, on an average, once every 27 verses, it's as if the Holy Spirit of God reminds us the Lord is going to return. It's crazy to me that most Christians live days, weeks, and months of their lives without ever thinking about the return of Christ. When the Bible says over and over and over, the Lord is going 
to return. Here's a church that had a question. It's fortunate for us that they had this question and that God inspired, uh, inspired Paul to write this letter so that this morning I can say to you, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and here's what God says about that return. There are three things that have to happen. Now we're ready, I believe, to read this. The scripture says in verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day, what day? Well, the day of the Lord's return. That's what the question is about. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. He has another name, the son of destruction. He has other names too, the son of perdition. You know him best by the name, the Antichrist. The scripture says in verse 4, of him, the Antichrist, he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he will take his seat in the temple of God. Now we know about this from the book of Daniel. Daniel gives it a name. This moment when the Antichrist declares that everyone must worship him is called the abomination of desolation. And so Paul is referring to this. He's, He's explaining what... God has revealed even all the way back in the Old Testament. He says to them, don't you remember that when I was with you, I told you about these things? And you know, because he told them, he taught them, you know what is restraining him, that is the man of lawlessness, now so that he will only be revealed in his time. What is it that keeps Satan from doing the work that the scripture says he's going to do in the end times? What is it that keeps him from doing it now? Well, God's restraining him, and so he waits for his time, and he will do that work because, verse 7 says, the mystery of lawlessness, of sinfulness, of wickedness, of depravity, fill in the blank there, the the mystery of all of this is already at work in the world, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's taken out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and false wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And here you have the truth. We're reading the truth this morning. And and what you do with the truth determines what happens in your life So, because they refuse to love the truth and be saved, verse 11 says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they can believe what they want to believe, so that they can believe the lie. They'll believe what is false, and they will be condemned because they did not believe the truth, but they had pleasure in unrighteousness. Okay, it's not, it's not going to be a comprehensive lesson this morning. We don't, we don't have time to get out everything that's going to happen before the rapture and the second coming of the Lord. But three signs here that we can see that Paul gives us in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. First of all, the spiritual rebellion has to come. It's the first thing on the list. And so we find it in verse 3. Let no one deceive you, for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. That's how uh, the English Standard Version translates the word apostasia, apostasia. And uh, in English, we just call it the apostasy. Uh, apostasy is not a word that you probably use this week. It's, it's a theological word. It's sometimes translated the falling away. It means falling away from the word of God, the truth of God, falling away from God himself. 
but it's really better translated, apostia is better translated rebellion. And the world rebels against God. The world chooses to ignore the truth of God and the revelation of God and the Son of God and the salvation of God. And this is the rebellion. And so this, this is a worldwide spiritual rebellion. Theological word is apostasy. But it's, it's not really an event. It's, it's more of a progression. All right? Um, it, it's not a singular thing. Paul tells us here, he says that the, verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. The depravity of the planet, the rejection of God is already at work. It just comes to its complete fruition at the end. And so, uh, and, then, and then it's called the falling away as well. Um, I've, I've given this a lot of thought. So here I am. I'm a, I'm a very uh, incomplete, flawed messenger. Uh, but it is, it is my calling to teach you God's word this morning and somehow try to help you see uh, what this rebellion is and, and what it is that it looks like in the process of this. And so what I've done this morning by, by way of illustration is I've, I've just gone back to pick out some headlines from only the last 10 days. I didn't go farther back than 10 days. All of these are almost within the week. And I just want to see if I can illustrate to you what it is that the rebellion is looking like, the worldwide spiritual rebellion. Uh, The European Court on uh, Human Rights ruled, this is one of the headlines, European Court on Human Rights ruled that Christian parents in Europe do not have the right to homeschool their kids. Just happened. It's been in the it's been in the courts for about three years. Uh, a uh, a Christian family who are Germans uh, were uh, they were incarcerated. They were arrested because they were uh, homeschooling their kids, and they didn't kid, send their kids to the state school. And so this has been in the courts. And the European Court on Human Rights is the Supreme Court in the uh, European Economic Community. It's the Supreme Court for Europe. And the ruling is not that everyone doesn't have the right. Christians do not have the right in Europe any longer to homeschool their kids. It's a criminal offense. Uh, In the Netherlands, uh, that legislature is determining whether or not churches that will only marry a man and a woman will be brought under criminal prosecution. So Dutch churches, uh, many of you are familiar with the uh, reform movement, Dutch reform movement, Calvinistic churches, that their home is the Netherlands. These churches who have believed biblical truth for two millennia are now about to be brought under criminal prosecution if they will only marry men and women. You might say to yourself, well, Paul, that's Europe. Of course. I mean, those guys, they don't have anything. So let's, let's get closer to home. In Missouri last week, you can't get any farther from Europe than Missouri. Uh, in Missouri uh, last week, a lesbian couple filed suit against a Christian 
retirement home, a retirement home that's been paid for by a, a denomination, and a denomination that does not believe that uh, uh, gay and lesbian marriage is biblical, but that the biblical model is a man and a woman. They brought lawsuit against them because the, because the retirement home wouldn't allow them to come and live as a married couple there. And the early, the early writings are that they're probably going to win. That's, that's in Missouri. But, but none of those were big news. You, you would have had to work a little bit to find those. You know what the biggest news of last week was? The biggest news of last week in America, other than the wall and the shutdown and Trump, the biggest news was that Karen Pence, the wife of the vice president of the United States, resumed what she had formerly done before he became vice president. She was an art teacher in Christian schools. And because the second lady of the United States is now working part-time as an art teacher in a Christian school, it made big press. And not once, I, I, looked, at three different, uh, I looked at three different news reports, none of them said that it was a Christian school, they all said that it was an anti-LBGTQ school. And when you read the reports, it's very clear that when you read it, you are to be shocked that the vice president's wife would do such a terrible, hateful thing. Probably the one that speaks to the spiritual rebellion the loudest is that a professor from Notre Dame, a highly esteemed professor from Notre Dame, her name is Amy Barrett. In fact, she was on the short list with uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court uh, nominees uh, recently. She is uh, well known for her law mind, teaches school at Notre Dame. She uh, has found that she may not be approved as a federal judge. And you ask yourself, well, why? Because she's a woman? No, they don't have any problem with that. Why? Because she's a devout Christian and a practicing Catholic. Diane Feinstein said, the nominee is simply too Christian. Chuck Schumer said, candidates with deeply held Christian beliefs are unfit and disqualified from serving as federal judges. Uh, some of you right now are a little you're struggling just a little bit because you're like, I like Emmanuel because Paul doesn't get political. And if you think this morning that I'm being political, you have missed the point. I'm illustrating the prophecies of the New Testament that says that the Lord won't return until there is a spiritual, a worldwide spiritual rebellion that denies God and His truth and His word and His way of salvation. And if you don't think that it's happening around us, you have purposely blinded yourself to it. But out of all those things that I told you, that's not the greatest part of the spiritual rebellion. In 2018, like 2017 and 2016, somewhere between 300,000 and 500,000 believers in this world were martyred for their faith. 
and it didn't make any news headlines. You, you do have to dig that out. It never makes the headlines. Most of those are martyred uh, in Islamic states. They're, they're called honor killings by their own family. When they become Christians and they turn their back on Islam, their own families kill them to save their honor. It also happens in North Korea. It happens in China. But we live in a world, the mystery of lawlessness, the mystery of depravity, the mystery of rebelliousness is great. And it was already moving in that direction. And I simply offer these to you as evidence in a, in a court as you decide, is God's word really true? And I would say to you, it is really true. And we really are moving to the end times. And some, some people have said, yeah, but everybody who ever lived thought they were in the end times. I would say to you that they didn't have this kind of spiritual rebellion, worldwide spiritual rebellion, to point to like we do. And as one preacher said, the days are growing gloriously dark as this presses on. Well, well what happens next? When we read this passage, we see, first of all, there is an apostasy that is a spiritual rebellion. But secondly, we see that there is a restrainer who is taken out of the way. Look at verses 6 and 7 again. And you know what is restraining him. Talking about the Antichrist, him. You know what's restraining him now that he will be revealed in his time. This mystery of lawlessness, it's already at work. It's great. Only now he doesn't say what. He says he. Only he who now restrains... Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. Over the years, theologians have debated, well, what is the restrainer? What could it be? I'm just going to go way out on a limb here and say to you, I don't think it's the United Nations that's restraining the Antichrist. Uh, I don't think it's any government at all. That doesn't even really make sense when government is often the perpetrator of evil. Some people have said, well, it's the church. And it makes a little bit of sense because each one of us, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, we are salt and light in our community. And certainly, as we share the love of Christ and the power of the gospel, we should be, by our lives, by the work of the, of the church, we should be restraining Satan. But when the Bible talks about the church, the Bible always uses the pronoun she, because she is the bride of Christ. The Bible never calls the church he, always her. Here in the passage it says, the one who's restraining, he will do that work until he is taken out of the way. I suggest to you that the restrainer can only be the Holy Spirit. Can you restrain Satan? Do you have the power to restrain Satan? Do I? In and of ourselves? No, absolutely not. Only God himself has this power, and certainly this must be the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the day of Pentecost was an interesting day. Jesus said to the apostles, he said, uh, John the Baptist baptized you with water, but you wait until I baptize you with fire. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell, and uh, each one of them had, as it were, cloven tongues of fire that appeared above their head, and they were baptized 
by the Holy Spirit. And they spoke in other languages. And people from 15 other countries, 3,000 people were saved that day. And the, and the gospel started that day just running rampant through the known world as they all took the gospel back to their own countries and their own communities. And it began what theologians call the age of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament, but this is a different time. This is a time when the Holy Spirit is moving in powerful, wonderful ways, convicting us, wooing us, calling us, teaching us his word, indwelling every single believer. This is the age of the Holy Spirit. There was a time when there wasn't an age of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, that was brought to an end. John the Baptist was the end of that. That's the, that's the last chapter on that book. And then Jesus comes, and now the age of the Holy Spirit. So you and I today, 2019, we live in the age of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's called the church age. But the age of the Holy Spirit will come to an end. Just as it had a beginning, it will have an end. And Paul writes that the one who restrains the Antichrist, the one who restrains the work of Satan, he will be recalled to heaven he he won't be left on the earth to restrain it any longer now he doesn't give us a time when this happens but many believe that this happens at the same time as the rapture and if you think about it it makes perfect sense You're a believer, I'm a believer. You're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And when those who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit are called home, and the Holy Spirit is called home, then every good restraint, every divine restraint that once kept this world from becoming, reaching its full evil potential is gone. And the Apostle Paul says, that's the second thing that has to happen before the coming of the Lord. So it's a, it's a really short outline. Number one, the spiritual rebellion. It's got to come first. And I think we see that it's a process and it's upon us. It's, it's coming for us. Does it come in our lifetime? Maybe. Maybe, maybe uh, one day the Congress passes a law that if we preach the biblical truth probably particularly regarding marriage, that we'll lose our tax-exempt status. I could see that coming. I could see maybe like the Netherlands, it gets criminalized. And when it gets criminalized, what happens next? Well, then I start my prison ministry. And we chuckle, but should I be so honored to be privileged to be in prison for the gospel like the Apostle Paul? What a glorious day that would be. So yes, it's growing gloriously dark. And then, the one who restrains is removed, quite possibly with the church at the rapture. But there's a third thing that has to happen. The man of lawlessness must be revealed. The son of perdition, the son of destruction, the Antichrist... And the Apostle Paul tells us four things. We don't, we don't have to go to Daniel. We don't have to go to Revelation. Just from this passage alone, we know four things about him. Number one, he comes in the power of Satan with false wonders. He's going to do incredible things that will cause people to believe the lie, to believe in him, to set aside the truth and to choose the Antichrist. 
he will come with supernatural delusion so that those who have continually rejected Christ will believe his lies. Every now and then, somebody uh, tells me, oh, so nobody gets saved during the tribulation. No, no, millions and millions and millions of people get saved during the tribulation. The apostle John saw a vision, and the angel said, he said, look at these, and, and John says, they were more than you could count. Millions will get saved during that time. But those who have already chosen to reject Christ, those who find themselves actively fighting in the rebellion, the apostasy against him, they believe the lie. They believe not only a satanic delusion, but even from something from God himself. Look in verse 11. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they can believe what is false. It's okay because that's what they want to believe anyway, right? They've chosen it. They've already, they've already staked that. We find in this passage that the Antichrist will oppose all forms of worship. It's interesting, isn't it? He even opposes the forms of worship that are false worship. Why? Because the thing he wants more than anything else is to be worshipped. This is why Lucifer was thrown out of heaven. This is what he wants. When, when he has Christ and you read about the temptation of Christ, he takes him up on a high hill overlooking all the kingdoms of the world and he says, I'll give all of these to you if you'll fall down and worship me. This is what he wants. It's what he wants from our lives. He wants to be worshipped. So much so that he will even proclaim himself to be God. He'll do that in the temple in Jerusalem. It's the abomination of desolation. It's at that moment that we know both from Daniel and Revelation, that Israel, who are going along, they're being, they're being deceived, they're being deluded. They think that the, the Antichrist might be the Messiah. It's at that moment when scales fall off their eyes, spiritually speaking, they see that this is the Antichrist. They reassess their history and their theology, and they realize Jesus is the Messiah. And almost to a person... Israelites will give their life to Christ, and when they do so, the Antichrist will kill them and kill them and kill them and kill them. The number that die at his hand who are martyred for their faith are innumerable, and he will declare himself to be God and not allow any other worship. And then the scripture says, and notice notice how Paul just says this. He just says that, And the lawless one will be revealed, verse 8, so the the Antichrist will be here, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and uh, just really bring to nothing all that he's done by his appearance. You know, we, we, I guess we can't help it. We are, I mean, as Americans, modern Americans, we are subject to the idea of Hollywood endings, right? And so because we... Because we think about Hollywood endings, we, we think about Jesus coming back and he's got a lightsaber. And Satan, Darth Satan's got a lightsaber. And they fight and it looks close. And Jesus almost gets his hand cut off. And it cuts part of his robe. And it goes on for 15 minutes and there's music. Dun, 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 dun. And then whew, at the end, Jesus wins. Except that's not what Scripture says. Do you remember how Jesus created the whole universe? With a word, let there be light. And there was light. That's how he takes care of this at the end. Let there be death. And there'll be death. 
Jesus will destroy him. He just, the, the Antichrist will be destroyed when the Lord comes and he, and he just brings it all to nothing. It's like, it's like he'll say to us, don't cry, cry over spilt milk. It's over now. And the scripture says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. It's the end of it. The question, I think, for us this morning is do you truly live your life as a believer of this? I think one of the reasons that we don't touch the lives of those that are lost, one of the reasons that we're not as effective as we could be in our prayer lives, one of the reasons that we don't serve the Lord with fervor and zeal is because we kind of live like the world. We just know we're going to go to heaven when we die. And we don't believe the truth of the word of God, which lays it all out for us and says, so this is what's going to happen, and you should live your life accordingly. I want to ask for every head to be bowed and every eye to be closed. Here, let's just answer a few questions for me this morning. You can do that by raising your hand, okay? I'm just going to give you several questions. If it fits you, raise your hand. And uh, don't, we're not going to look around at each other to see how many of us have raised our hands. It's just, a, it's just the, for you to do a little self-analysis, all right? How, how many of you would say, I, uh, Paul, I actually I went all week, and until this moment, I don't think I ever thought of the second coming of Christ once. And you just raise your hand and say, just that confession. All over the room. Lots of us. How many of you would say, when I think about my goals for this upcoming week, I don't know that I've thought about them in terms of the fact that Christ may come before the week is out. How many of you would raise your hand and say, that's me. And that's, that's even more of us than the first question. How many of you would say, if the Lord came today... I have a dear loved one who would not go with us to heaven. You'd raise your hand all over the room. Shouldn't, shouldn't we actually receive God's word as truth? And shouldn't we start living that way? If you're here this morning, you've given, never given your life to Christ. That's where it starts. It starts at the cross. It starts when asking for the forgiveness of sins and asking him to come into your life and giving him your life. But many of you in this room have already done that. You just, you're missing the blessing that God has. You're missing the miracles that God has. You're missing the power that God has that he wants to show in your life because you're really not aligning yourself with the truth of God's word. So this morning is a chance for us to do business with God, a chance for us to realign ourselves in a way that would bring him glory and honor. Father, you, you know our journey, you know our paths, you know each one of us, the path that brought us here this morning, and, and everyone is different and unique. But you're the God who knows us and calls us by name, who counts the hairs on our head and knows everything about us. You're the God who reveals himself to us by your word. And our prayer this week is that we would start to align ourselves with the power and the truth and the certainty of your word, even when it speaks of future events that haven't happened yet. 
And so, Father, we don't want to be uh, we don't want to be believers who just are hanging out in the Alamo waiting for the end. We want to be those who attack the gates of hell, knowing that the gates of hell cannot stand up against the love and the power and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray you would do that work in our lives, individually, in our marriages, in our church. We pray for revival in our nation. Do this work is the prayer that we pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. Um, Some of you, uh, you're the kind of person that you, you go and you read the end of the book first. Now, you don't have to say who you are. Or maybe if the movie gets really tense, you fast forward past the tense part to get to the end of that. You, you want to get to the happy ending. So this morning we've talked about spiritual rebellion and apostasy and lawlessness in the world and the Antichrist. And so here's the end of the story, Revelation 20. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, the one is the devil, Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and he threw him into the pit and he shut it and he sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And then I saw thrones seated on them. You're wondering in this story, well, where are you? Where are we? Where are the believers? I saw thrones seated on them, and they were those to whom was given authority to judge. Did you know that when we come back with Jesus, we will get what we've always wanted, a government job (laughs) with no shutdowns. I don't know what job you're praying for. I'm praying to be superintendent of Yellowstone National Park. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, they didn't receive his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead didn't come to life until after the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, because over him the second death has no power. I don't have time to preach this, so I've got to give it to you really quick, right? So you either, you either live twice and die once, or you live once and die twice. Everybody has a physical life, and everybody has a physical death. But those who give their lives to Christ have an eternal life. They have two lives and one death. Only the physical death. But those who reject Christ only have the physical life, and then they have a physical death and an eternal death. You either live twice and die once, or you live once and die twice. Blessed and holy are those who have part of the first resurrection because the second death has no power over you. Have a great day. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.